Greetings, everybody. Gib Christensen here, reporting from my underground sewer bunker. I don't know if you can tell from my tone or the dripping, but me and Jamie are kinda on the run. This new episode of Male Living Space ended up being dangerously controversial, and we may have been banned from most of Rhode Island. Now, to keep the controversy from spreading, the end of the episode has been lost to time. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, on purpose. So sadly, there is no ending. But don't worry, we'll be back next month with a regular length, totally harmless episode. So enjoy, and please send snacks to the sewer. Thank you. Space, a podcast about sparse. Welcome to Male Living Space, a podcast about sparks. I'm Gib Christensen, and I love the band Sparks. I'm Jamie Ogihara, and I don't know one single thing about the band Sparks. And together, we're dissecting this seminal brotherly band's complete body of work, one album at a time. It's funny, at this point, you know more than a single thing about the band Sparks, but for now, we'll just keep that in the script so, I don't know, people think you forget every month. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I actually get bonked on the head after every single recording, and I have to <laughs> relearn everything there is to know about Sparks by actually listening to the previous episodes of the show. So all I know about Sparks, really, are the things that you and I have talked about. Exactly. This is actually a show I'm doing for charity to help you out with this. Although I am the one who's sending the coconut to bonk you with to give you the amnesia, so it's kind of a weird cycle. Don't overanalyze it. Anyway, the last episode we talked about the album Indiscreet, Sparks' foray into much more expensively produced orchestral, what they sometimes refer to as Sgt. Pepper phase music. The reception was solid. Nobody in the press was saying that it was like the new best one, that it topped Kimono My House, but if you were a fan, you most likely dug it, except for the corner of them who are much more into the guitar heroism. There's still some of that in indiscreet to a degree, but you still didn't really get that much of a, a helping of shredding. After the reception of the album being lukewarm but still solid, Russell and Ron decided that they wanted to take another crack at the American market. So they packed up their bags yet again, left the rest of the band members yet again, and set sail back to California just to see if maybe with what they've learned over the years they can finally understand their own home country's tastes. The issue was, though, that record label pressures and other meddling in the process resulted in a hectic production process, leaving an album in the end to come out and receive Sparks' discography's worst reception yet. Everything else always had like a very, very solid pool of fans appreciating what they put out, but something about 1976's Big Beat really rubbed people the wrong way in that year at least. I've got a quote, even. You have a quote? Let's see here. It had been described as muscular proto-metal, 
and I guess that was like a, a bad thing at the time. They returned to the studio, excited to make the next album and try to make their big American break, but the record label decided they needed to put a new album together in less than a year. They didn't really plan that, and while you know that's not a super rare thing to happen, a record label pushing you to very quickly follow your last thing up to keep the hype going, they also insisted on having the track list and the album cover and album title done before any production could start. They would not let them record, mix, or anything mm -hmm. until the label was sent a definitive track list, cover, and title. There, it just was such a strange process for Ron and Russell in terms of having to really quickly write tracks and not have a lot of time to decide what's necessary or like build anything too much further, kind of accidentally giving them a punk aesthetic. The album also had to be mixed in three days at the very last minute. Oh! Yeah! I buried the lead a bit there. Their new producer for this album uh, was Rupert Holmes, and they got to record with Columbia Records because A&E was just about done with their merger with Epic Records at the time of this album's production, and suddenly the weirdos like Sparks got access to bigger names, bigger studios, etc. Why they wanted Rupert Holmes is his very diverse mix of experience production-wise and with his own solo albums. But what really, really got Russell's attention was the fact that he had made a Beatles pastiche called I Don't Want to Hold Your Hand. Mm -hmm. And already very early on, Russell knew he wanted to do a cover of I Want to Hold Your Hand. So he was like, well, that guy will definitely know how to make it for me. Mm. Also, fun fact, the I Want to Hold Your Hand cover on this album wasn't even supposed to be a Sparks cover. It was going to be a Russell Male solo project mm -hmm. where he was going to duet with Marianne Faithful. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. So for a good while, they were workshopping the song together and pitching it back and forth just because she was really busy at the time. But at the very last minute, she bailed. Oh. But they were like, well, we still really want to do this song. And... Ron eventually to Russell was just like, let's just call it a Sparks thing. It doesn't have to be a solo effort. Mm -hmm. Let's just all make it together, make something cool. Beyond the Beatles cover, though, it's still all around a very punky effort, just as the movement is cropping up all over the place. Now that I've given a little bit of background on Big Beat, let us give our Sparks book reports. This is where me and Jamie, each month, give a quick but detailed report on the album. It's where our opinions come to shine, and the other person has to shut up for a second and cannot fight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, slowly but surely this podcast is going to become more of a battleground <laughs> where <laughs> we arm our opinions. Jamie, would you like to start the book reports? Sure would. All right, go ahead. This is Jamie's Sparks Book Report. On Big Beat. On Big Beat, their sixth album, Sparks serves up a severely dumbed-down take on their typical glam rock court jester shtick. Absent is the compositional precision of propaganda and the sly genre hopping of indiscreet. In fact, the album's bonus tracks are the only reminder that the band's last two albums hinted at some modicum of artistic maturity. <laughs> Big Beat sees the Mail Brothers dusting off Kimono My House's loud clown act with far less vigor than before, but the affair is not entirely charmless. 
the liquid solos and slick piano pounding of Nothing to Do and I Bought the Mississippi River stick out as moments of solid musicianship, even if they tend toward the mindlessly pleasant. Sparks may have kicked off the decade as quirky innovators, but regrettably, on the forgettable big beat, they sound as if they're either spinning their wheels or playing catch-up with their contemporaries. That was very good. Very good indeed. Thank you. It's a short one. It's one of the shorter ones. In the spirit of punk, it's pleasantly short and doesn't wear out its welcome. There you go. Here's Gib Christensen's book report on Sparks' 1976 album, Big Beat. The male brothers aren't punks. They're skunks. Square punks. (laughs) Don't let the album cover fool you. They're not jocks or tough or anything. Instead, they respond to popular music at the time's distaste for conformity with an ironic, minimalistic celebration of conformity. These are punk songs not written from the perspective of rebels, but from the perspective of the idiots rebels make fun of. Whether you're a big macho man stealing everyone's girls at the bar, a dumbass that doesn't even understand the movie he's in, or just a dude with racist dating preferences, there's something in this album about you. Maybe not for you, but definitely about you. (laughs) Forced to innovate due to time constraints and record label nonsense, Sparks sort of fell into punk with an album that still polarizes the fan base to this day. Oh, and they invented the diss track. So there's that. Invented the diss track? I like to think that Confusion is the first diss track towards Jacques Tati. (laughs) (laughs) That's my hot take. Wow, that is a super hot take. And I really love the perspective that you've given about the way that Sparks is articulating punk by satirizing the stupider attitudes of the time. It's not a punk send-up, but their take on it, rather. Ron at one point said that they kind of saw the punk movement as directed towards bands like them. They thought they were being made fun of. Mm-hmm. So they thought, well, can't beat them, join them. They didn't even really expect this sort of production schedule or anything. Like I said, they just fell into it. Also, I thought that your callback to the portmanteau that you did in your very first Sparks book report, where you called Sparks the purveyors of Glock jams, <laughs> and now that you've called them skunks, square punks. So I like that you've got this fun little stylistic thing about your book report. This is honestly a lot about that book report I really appreciated. Is the album really polarizing to the fan base? Like, do people go head to head over it? Yeah, I'm kind of surprised about that too. I learned that after reading. So admittedly, on the dumber end of folks at 76, weirdly didn't think they were joking. So tracks like Throw Her Away and Get a New One the song about how tragic it is that women age, but hey, you don't gotta keep them. I guess just some didn't quite get the joke. Mm -hmm. So there's that, and then people also, kind of like what you were saying in your report, missed the more elaborate craftsmanship with the songs instead of the more repetitive, like you said, dumb fun Mm -hmm. that ended up being the final product. Even to this day, it turns out, like on the internet, it's still kind of a 50-50 split. Either you think it's a really fun send-up of the genre, mm-hmm. or you're like, ugh, fucking big beat. Mm-hmm. And it sold horribly. Oh, it, it didn't do what they wanted it to do at all? No, album crashed and burned. Wow. 
And to this day, I mean, even Ron and Russell will kind of back and forth on how they look back on it. Usually it's pretty fondly because they appreciate what they were able to do knowing the constraints that were under them, but mm -hmm. it's not really one that they'd argue is like, oh yeah, it's you know top three. It's just like, oh yeah, that was a time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's known as kind of, of all of their records, the polarizing one. The one that no one can really make a full consensus on because it's very much just kind of a matter of taste. Mm -hmm. So, as usual on the show, after our book reports, we rate each other's reports on our patented Sparks Ignitometer. Because we're talking about the band Sparks, we've decided everything needs to be measured based upon items that ignite and produce sparks, ranging from the lowest stone all the way to the mighty oil left in pan too long. Now, Jamie, I liked your very honest take on it. I wouldn't call it negative necessarily, but you were very to the point with why it seems like it. you gotta give the impression that you're not gonna be returning to this one too much again. Nothing really popped out at you, but not in a way that you're like, what is this shit? This horrible music. You're just like, it's there. I won't hate it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, at least that's the impression I'm getting from it. Yeah, no, I'm glad I was able to convey that I was not particularly moved in one direction or another the same way I was where I heard certain stuff on the debut album and was <laughs> horrified. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, well, that's all good. I feel like now you've acknowledged that you see that it is sort of a, a send-up in a way of the genre, not a parody, or necessarily an act of laziness because there's this weird rapid-fire method of creating this thing. I feel like maybe you could have mentioned more specific highlights, some mm -hmm. lyrics, or a track that the closest the album got to popping for you, sure. I guess, would be nice to know. So, I will put that book report in the aerosol can section of the ignitometer yeah i think that's absolutely fair as an album that i didn't have a whole lot to say on it was admittedly a bit of a struggle to single out one huge crowning moment that i felt i wanted to return to yeah it sounds like it just kind of all blended into you all right. Uh, what'd you think of mine i appreciated your insights in this book report we talk a lot about our feelings on these albums and our impressions of them, but this was one where you had a fan theory <laughs> and speculations and wonderful points about the album in the context of its time. And I was extraordinarily Aww. impressed with all of it. And while it hasn't gotten me to rethink my opinion, it has given me pause to readjust how I approach the subject of this album. So, for that influential quality of your writing, I am going to say that it is absolutely worthy of oil left in pan too long. <gasps> My god. Thank you so much. I'm assuming the, the plaque's in the mail, right? Tooth plaque, certainly. <gasps> Entire bucket of <laughs> Hell it. Hell yeah. Uh, the next segment, of course, is our top three tracks. So, Jamie... I'm really curious what your top three tracks of the album were, because I'm assuming it was a bit of a struggle for you to pick a top three. It was a bit of a struggle to pick a top three, specifically to pick a third. But ultimately, I came down on the side of my top three tracks on Big Beat being Nothing to Do, I Bought the Mississippi River, and the outtake Tearing the Place Apart. Very good choices. My top three are Big Boy, 
filler up and gone with the wind so interesting uh nothing in mm. common i was actually thinking about putting gone with the wind as a third i mean i definitely liked it on first listen but it definitely over time just kept appealing more and more to me i really see it as a strange mix of like a back song but it's like if you sent back to the middle ages with a synth and he just kind of jammed with a bunch of peasants <laughs> Because, like, you got the quirky little electronics noises near the end that I think are really pretty. And it's definitely a big highlight for me of the song. Mm-hmm. But everything else, the strings and this kind of whimsical vibe, it feels like someone sent the the strange loser himself to the Middle Ages to have a jam. Ironically, of course. Of course. I liked it because it reminded me of... Are you familiar with the song by Deep Blue Something, Breakfast at Tiffany's? Oh, I'm not. So it's a song by this pop rock band, and the subject of the song is that these two people are towards the end of their relationship, and they're looking back, and they're realizing that they didn't have a whole lot in common, except they both watched the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's together and thought it was mid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I really like that a lot. So I like to think of Gone with the Wind as a spiritual antecedent Mm -hmm. to Breakfast at Tiffany's where the narrator is dodging these questions about the story because ultimately he wasn't feeling particularly moved by the film. So... Even though he was in it? (laughs) Yes. Well, just impersonating one of the characters in it. Right, right, right. Yeah. Also, a fun fact that you'll probably enjoy about uh, Nothing to Do Mm. is uh, Joey Ramone went on record saying he wanted to cover it. He was a huge fan. I'm not entirely surprised. The Ramones have a very notable song called I Just Want to Have Something to Do. Yeah, exactly. Like, of course, of all tracks on there, it's like... Oh, the song about being bored. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Joey, you ever get bored? (laughs) That's absolutely uh, Ramon's topic. (laughs) One that we turn to a bunch. I mean, I want to be sedated and things of that nature. I just Mm want to sniff some glue. And this one has all of the bluster of a Elton John track from around that time. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Uh, Another fun fact I failed to mention about the recording... The studio they recorded this in was also the same studio where the original music for Sesame Street was recorded. Really? Yeah. So maybe that's what it is. It's not back in the Middle Ages. It's like (laughs) Beck went back in time to make a Sesame Street jam. (laughs) You know, it's so interesting that you're making a reference to children's entertainment because the first thing that struck me about one of my top tracks, I bought the Mississippi River, is wow. Ron wrote a very kid-friendly song. Wow. Like, a song that could be, like, turned into a children's book. Yeah, oh my god. I I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) What a funny album for that to land on, too. Right? Where does Ron's, like, kid-friendly could turn this into a book song show up? On the same track as uh, White Women and Throw Her Away and Get a New One. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it actually reminded me a little bit of the B-side Lost and Found from Kimono My House, which is also about colonialism. Yeah, it's interesting seeing them kind of use those perspectives as people who've darted back and forth from the US and the UK. You know, like who they make fun of, what they think needs to be talked about, and... Yeah, 
Hospitality on Parade was about that too. We didn't get the chance to talk about it during the episode oh, on right. Indiscreet, but Hospitality on Parade was this wonderful little bit of commentary about feeling indebted to England, but also feeling these ties to the downtrodden of America because of revolutionary alliances. Sparks are an American band after all, and feeling very resentful about systems of of slavery and oppression, hmm. be kind to our masters, things of that nature. But to hear them do I Bought the Mississippi River, which is not entirely not about the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I ended up doing every time I listened to this song, is trying to decide, like, am I just overthinking it? Or is this kid-friendly song also a Louisiana Purchase song? Either way, great, but it's so on brand to do either. Yeah, it's fully a very child-friendly song about wouldn't it be funny if (laughs) I bought the Mississippi River? Do rivers need companions? But it's also going back to the ideas of Lost and Found, which was, I found a wallet. I found a country. These are the same to me. (laughs) Maybe it's the same character. <laughs> I'm just getting everything. One wonders if it's this it's the same character. And then the goofy like background voices. Yeah, it's yours, yours! <laughs> Very Muppety. <laughs> yeah, so fun. But speaking of really fun tracks, part of why I like filler up is it has this goofy faux macho speedy little song. Very much in thanks to their new drummer who had a great name. Hilly Michaels. Hilly Michaels! Hilly Michaels on drums. Hitting him fast, hitting him speedy, mm. other synonyms. But it's just really funny picturing Ron and Russell trucking to any capacity mm-hmm. and speeding down the highway to deliver something no one really needs. It, it sparks. They're delivering not a record player. What was before record players again? A gramophone? Phonographs. Oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> And so I like how on this track, and kind of in the same way with Big Boy, them pretending to be macho, knowing that, like, of of course it's not legit. You look at them on the cover, yeah, Russell's doing the crossed arms shirtless, and Ron's trying to look serious. Mm -hmm. But, like, would you be intimidated by them if you saw them, like, across the street in those outfits? I feel like I could easily beat up Ron Mayle. (laughs) But when it comes to Russell... I don't know, Gib. <laughs> Remember, from the Get in the Swing video, his thighs were toned. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. I was about to say I'm the opposite and feel like Ron's strong, but God, you're right, Russell's legs. Didn't I read somewhere that Russell was a quarterback? Yes, indeed. He was a high school quarterback. Jesus Christ! No way I'm fighting that dude. Fuck off. <laughs> He made the local paper and everything. There's a, they show wild. a great picture of it in the movie. You'll see. It's just like, <laughs> so fucking funny. Especially as his outfits get more and more glammy and all that. It's just so funny knowing, like, you're the brother that got tackled all the time. Moreover, he's got so much fucking stamina. <laughs> yeah. Physically, vocally, You see everything. these Top of the Pops videos and he's running around and he's pulling himself forward, jerking himself back. He's really playful and knows how to handle extremely intense crowds. Like in the uh, performance of Amateur Hour where he's fighting off wave after wave of insane British teenagers. 
Also, props to being barefoot, too. I don't know if you noticed that uh, in that video, but he was doing all that and barefoot in a jumpsuit, so right on. Oh, Um, right. That's also actually part of why they moved back to America. Uh, Ron and Russell kind of got burnt out on the extreme energy of the crowds in Britain, so they kind of just wanted to chill out a bit more in America to find their next style. Oh. Yeah. Oh, and also, back to Big Boy... My first note on it, after just saying top three, is I hate the big boy so much. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a biblical story, isn't it? Because he says, my name is David. Right, yeah. God, yeah, it took me a little while to make that connection. Because at first I just pictured just like a frat bro in a bar trying to throw his weight around and all that. They just do a, such a good job of making like a hateable guy. Mm-hmm. like. It just felt like, kind of how you mentioned, like, the toxic side of punk at the time. I liked how quickly, at the start of the movement and everything, they were able to kind of distill those shittier sides of the scene into a song in such a rapid-fire manner. Like, good on them. Weird connection reminds me a little bit of how quickly, like, Weird Al could turn out stuff at sometimes in the early days. It's like, huh, you already did that. Speaking of, Weird Al is also a huge fan of them. Mm. He uh, has an accordion cover of This Town. Any hoozle. What do you want to say about Big Boy? I was just going to say that Big Boy is the song that probably feels the most rushed yeah, to me. Sure. It rhymes around with around <laughs> with around. Yeah. I think I also just like the fact that near the end, it sounds like a horde of frat bros are chanting. And I always kind of feel like that's the inner monologue of the Big Boy. Mm-hmm. He just thinks everyone thinks he's super cool. So he's just like, Big Boy, Big Boy. Mm-hmm great i wish it had a music video i guess is like the best way to distill my opinion on it it just really feels like there could be a funny music video for it sure but thankfully the next album is where they start making music videos more on the rig so <laughs> look forward to that let's talk about the rest of your top three we've gone through all mine now i only have one other top track because i talked about nothing to do right. and i bought the mississippi right. so my only other top track is the outtake tearing the place apart which feels like something off of Indiscreet. Yeah, I really like that they chose to end their proto-punk album with a deceptively titled Loungy Croony song. I mean, that's one of the bonus tracks. Oh, right, yeah, true. The actual ending track for Big Beat is I Like Girls. Oh, right. That was also one of my favorites, too. It's just a funny little song about a guy who's very, very, very desperately trying to convince you he's straight. Yes. Yes, it is. I <laughs> I love the line, nobody asked, but I'll say it. I like girls. I like girls. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, back to tearing the place apart. Yeah, I agree with you. It's very loungy. You can imagine a lounge singer having a lot of fun with it. Mm-hmm. And it occupies the same sort of space as Looks, 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 I feel, Mm -hmm. where it's very showy. And honestly, it has the same walking rhythm as Without Using Hands from Indiscreet as well. I wonder how many arrangements of that album they went through to decide upon choosing that track over this track. Yeah, definitely. I'll never not think it's really funny. A song titled Tearing the Place Apart is the least aggressive song that it could be. Mm -hmm. Any other elements about it you wanted to bring up? I really just like the melody. I like the relaxed pacing of it after hearing all of that really brutal rock stuff for most of the (laughs) record. (laughs) Brutal, yeah. 
brutal by Sparks' standards. Even I Bought the Mississippi and Nothing to Do have these guitar solos in them for reasons that are a little beyond me. (laughs) I think they're just always a little afraid if they don't have, like, a quota of shredding, they'll lose everyone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was me and Jamie's top three tracks from Big Beat. We will be right back after this quick commercial break. Thank you very much. Totally awesome! Isn't Sparks, like, totally dutical? They're okay. Okay? Twiggy, Sparks is your ultimate favorite group in the whole world. For sure. Hello? Hey. Hey, buddy. Tragedy. Hmm? Hmm? Sorry. Tragedy? Yeah, oh, sorry. Yes, me. You, so, uh, you see all this water, right? Looks like you're having a nice time. It's a tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen you skipping rocks across uh, this river. What if I told you that it could be yours? The rocks? Oh, ignore the rocks. This here river, this giant, expansive river. I want to say the the Mississippi. No, yeah, Miss Mississippi. Should probably learn it if I want to sell it. Anyway, the Big Muddy. The we big can call money, it the Big Muddy. Yes, the Big Muddy River. For too long, nature's gifts to the world have been owned by nature. And it didn't pay a damn cent. So I'm here to actually take what is owed and give what is owed. What do you mean no one can own a river? Have you ever heard that nonsense? Has anyone ever tried to convince you you can't buy a river? All the time. Everyone tells me the best things in life are free. A river is one of the best things. Therefore, a river isn't free. I've heard that a lot in my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, me and many, many people, uh, definitely many people... We sell any river you want throughout the glorious United States. You name one, and I'll name you a price. The Lakafta River. Uh, that is 75 cents, but you can't use quarters. 75 cents is a pretty good deal for a river, I must say. There's gotta be some sort of catch. Okay. I'll be real with you. I'll be real with you, stranger I'm talking to at this park near the river. So there is a little something extra to my whole selling you a river bit. We may or may not have ties to every single type of mob. The Yakuza. The Triad. Uh, Olive Garden. Oh, yes, exactly. We're sort of uh, cleaners, but I like to see ourselves as more uh, environmentalists, helping out the good people and the not-so-good people deal with some trash. But the feds are starting to get very questiony, so we just thought we'd seek out some big fans of Big River and, uh, you know, pawn it off on them, to be frank. So, uh, want a river? So, just so I have this absolutely clear, you want me to buy a river for a very, very reasonable fee so I can assist you in the disposal of dead... Didn't say dead. ...bodies that were mob hits into the murky depths. Um, are you wearing a wire? He's onto us. Sorry, sorry, that was my grandma friend. No, uh, uh, da- uh, uh, my gra- my grand friend. My, gran- my grandmother's friend. Oh, well, uh... Who also is interested in buying a river and would love to write a greeting card for some of the people in the organization as a way of saying thank you for helping her to buy the river. And I don't 
suppose you would happen to know their first and last names uh, right off the bat? Uh, John Smith? Um, John Smith. Beyonce? Uh, Alf. Just put down Alf. Just put down. Just put down Alf. Uh. What? Are you wearing a wire? Oh. You you can't ask someone if they're wearing a wire if they asked you if you're wearing a wire. Ah! ah no takes backsies. No takes You're wearing a wire. Ah. ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, guess we're both a little guilty. All right, I'll buy your crummy river. No. Cool. Make sure you feed it and walk it and love it every day. Okay, bye. Welcome back to Male Living Space, a podcast about sparks. We've been talking about our top three tracks for the 76 album Big Beat, sort of a proto-punk slash punk uh, response album. The Saint Anger of the Sparks Cannon. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, we come back from a commercial break and you just... You dare bring Lars Ulrich into the same room as the Mail Brothers? Lars has every right to be in this room! <laughs> Lars is only in a room that's trying to download Napster. He can't touch me. Lars is so mad that you and I have downloaded System of a Down Legend of Zelda. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten multiple cease and desist orders from him. Though, oddly enough, James Hetfield asks me for just, like, hairstyling tips, so I don't really know where I stand with Metallica. You're kidding! You probably race custom cars with them, too! Oh yeah, totally. It's strange. I don't look Lars in the eye, but, uh... <laughs> That's how you turn to stone. <laughs> yeah, they say a few pirate music and stare into the eyes of Lars Ulrich. <laughs> <laughs> you turn to stone. And he'll also uh, rate our podcast one star and leave bad comments. I dare you to do it, Lars! No, no, damn it. I think your painting sucks. I didn't, I didn't say, Lars, I didn't say that. That was Jamie. We sound very different from each other. I'm sure you know who's talking. Yeah, Gibbs Louder. <laughs> <laughs> this is a music review show. Yes, it is. And Lars, we're not reviewing your album. We're reviewing the album by Sparks. Big Beat. And now, we're going to tell you, the listener, Lars Ulrich, our bottom three tracks on Big Beat. Gib, what tracks bugged the heck out of you? What bugged the gosh darn heck out of me? Well, my bottom three tracks are White Women, the I Want to Hold Your Hand cover, mm. and Intrusion slash Confusion. Mm. Uh, what about you? My bottom three tracks are England, Filler Up, and White Women. <laughs> I'm assuming you didn't dig Filler Up because of the repetitive, really simple nature to it. The repetitive, simple nature of it. I've never loved Sparks's big rock and roll homages. Right. I didn't like How Are You Getting Home. Ugh. I didn't like Barbecue. And this one's no different to me. This is just the third in a series of poor artistic decisions hampered by American rock nostalgia. It's not my thing. And the one throwaway lyric about taking the truck to somewhere where there's no one black or brown isn't enough for me to call it a particularly entertaining or clever song. Yeah, I guess we have... 
We have white women in common. <laughs> I think it's an insane track. I thought, <laughs> like at first, I was like, okay, funny, but it's just the repeat listens that I think got it to the bottom for me. Yeah. I can only hear Russell scream "white women" so many times. I'm not blasting that with speakers. That's a headphone song if I've ever heard one. What are your thoughts on it? Oh, I have so many complex thoughts about white women, but okay, <laughs> here goes. <laughs> If you, 16-year-old in the year 1976, American teenager, picked up Sparks' Big Beat, and you heard the songs on side A, flipped it over, side B, here comes white women. (laughs) You, American teenager, don't know anything about this band's reputation as satirists. You've seen a very austere album cover, (laughs) and you've witnessed a bunch of tracks that are a little cheeky, sure, but none of them are big character Mm -hmm. songs like this. And then you get to White Women, you'd be forgiven for thinking that it's not a joke. I I think if you want to talk about, like, between this and Throw Her Away and Get a New One, this one definitely feels less subtle. And like you said, in that environment teenager pre-internet you're probably not reading the magazines and the critics on what they've thought of sparks's albums and all that so yeah you can easily see it get misconstrued especially when russell lets out his i'll say very like nazi yelly way of yelling white women that i'm not as into yeah no definitely (laughs) it's a super uncomfortable track and i I get that it's supposed to make you uneasy with the ideology but Okay, like Randy Newman has a song where he says the (laughs) N-word. Really? Yeah. (laughs) And I get that he's supposed to be doing a hillbilly character. Right. White women doesn't go that far, and the 70s is kind of this era of snarky singer-songwritery things that edge a little bit into cuddly racism. <laughs> the song Buana She No Home that the Carpenters covered comes to mind as well about an employer who is threatening to send their help back oh. to Ecuador <laughs> if they don't do their job correctly. And it's like, oh... Funny joke! (laughs) And white women feels in the exact same category. It is racism played as a joke, and the joke isn't funny. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It gets a bit too uh, real. Yeah! I've heard someone say it seriously before. Yeah. On a much lighter note, I want to hold your hand. The disco ballad cover of I Want to Hold Your Hand. (laughs) I don't even, I wouldn't even say really I dislike it, dislike it. Of my bottom three, this is probably the one where I was like, okay, I've got to have a third. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll go with the one that one isn't written by Sparks and is just like kind of a, a why. I'm sure they had fun. I mean, I definitely get that, mm-hmm. especially with its origin being, it was supposed to be just a weird Russell solo effort. He wanted to do a cute duet. Yes. Mm, it's such a awkward little thing thrown in there amongst the snarky, bordering on not jokey enough like white women. It's like, it really just belongs in some other record. Like, it would have made a lot more sense to be on Indiscreet with all the other orchestral lush instrumentation and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. While I do dig Russell's vocals on it, he gets some nice notes and it's pretty pretty. Yeah, I love the whispery touch you. (laughs) 
yeah exactly <laughs> exactly but it's like that's not really what i'm gonna go to big beat for on repeat no listening. definitely I'm not no. like oh right big beat the one with the beatles cover no big beat is actually short for big beatles fan <laughs> Russell picked it I'll out. Start another conspiracy theory about this band. My last bottom three be more of a remix uh, of Confusion. The demo, I think. Yeah, yeah. I loved Confusion because it felt like this proto new wave kind of thing. I I really liked its guitars, and and again, a you like the cha cha rhythm. I like the cha cha rhythm. I like that it's named after the Jacques Tati they never made together. Mm. It was definitely the most earwormy for me. I mean, screwed up kind of got in my head a decent amount i also enjoy screwed up screwed up is more like playful misogyny yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly but with confusion it's a line that so stuck in my head i was repeating to myself a lot it was just a confusion yeah just the way that russell says tati into the mic i was just really had a nice yeah. rhythm stuck in my head but with this version while at first i found like nothing redeeming about it i was just like why would i listen to this version i'm not really getting much until it clicked with me what it really is this is just a mario party version <laughs> this is a sparks mario party song it's very in your face suddenly it's way more jingly so uh, i assume if they're working on their own mario party board this is the song they'll have play landed <laughs> on the space that gets you uh, smashed by Ron's piano. I will say the sound of the keyboard on Intrusion slash Confusion reminds me a lot of early New Wave. Something like Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark oh, yeah. comes to mind. Yeah, true. Yeah, I wouldn't call it unlistenable or anything, but there's both versions on this album, so it's like, oh, occasionally I'll jump into this, but it's like, I'm probably going to put the default, like the normal version, on. Yeah, I think that's fair. I wasn't really feeling either of the two songs, Confusion or Intrusion, because we've talked a lot about how Sparks narrates these stories about losers, and I feel like that narrative of, oh, I must be confused because there's a different man in my wife's room, so I must have the wrong room, oopsie-daisy. <laughs> I feel like that's not one of their more compelling loser narratives. Oh, yeah. uh, we've heard them do it a lot better and with more narrative complexity on things like No More Mr. Nice Guys. There is more like gusto and stuff like tits. And there, I mean, there's like the reveals of like, oh, okay, he misses boobs. Mm -hmm. but it's not just that. He's confessing this to his bartender. It's not just that. The bartender's fucking his wife there's more of a mystery to unravel right so i think really with confusion it's more the instrumental that makes it one of my favorites there's just something really mm -hmm. like nice and relaxing about those guitars that i really dig let's talk about the rest of your bottom three i've talked about how i don't like filler up right probably talked too much about why i don't like white women oh, no, I, it, <laughs> I knew i was like we're both gonna want to talk a lot about that song <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. My third one was England, and I just find the song annoying. <laughs> yeah. Like a bug buzzing around my head or something. <laughs> That's a really good way to describe it. Because, like, it's funny. I do get uh, a certain kind of enjoyment out of it, but kind of for that reason, it's just, just such a weird, annoying, strange song. Nothing that I'd ever jam to or be like, this fucking rules, but just like, mm -hmm. oh, right. England, this thing, um, yeah, it's 